All right, well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. Uh, what an appropriate song to lead us into our study of the Word of God today as we just sang of the importance of God's Word in our lives. And so we want to take our Bibles this morning and turn to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. I think there are 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. So we are marching along, not yet quite halfway yet in our study of the Gospel of John. But it's interesting that uh, there's only about three months until Jesus will go to the cross. And so all that we will study over the course of the next year or so as we move ourselves through from chapter 9 all the way to chapter 21 uh, is going to be all towards the end of his public ministry. And so uh, we're going to be in chapter 9 this morning, verses 1 through 12. That will be our text. Well, when our kids were little, uh, they used to ask why a lot. Does this sound familiar, parents? Uh, we would tell them to do something, and they would ask why. For instance, we may tell them to go and clean the room, and they would ask why. And so we might say, because your cousins are coming over, and we want your room to be clean when they get here. Or they might, uh, we might tell them that they need to eat all the food on their plate at dinner, and they might ask why. And we'd say, well, because your body needs food to get strong. And so for a while, we played along and would tell them why on most things, which, as you know, is a rookie mistake, because it didn't take us long to realize that us answering all their whys was just heading was just feeding the monster for more whys. It became very apparent that their asking why was nothing more than a delay tactic in their attempt to try to get out of whatever it was we were asking them to do. And so I remember telling Kathy, the days of us always answering all their whys are over. We don't always owe them why. They're our kids. We need to teach them that they're to do whatever we tell them to do regardless of why. But at the same time, if we think that their whys are legit, we might choose to answer, but only if we want to. So we talked about all this, and we came to a conclusion that we were done with all of the answering of the whys all the time. When we think of our experience in the Christian life, as we mature in the faith, we realize that God doesn't give us the whys of life in real time. Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29 helps us with this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us. There are things that are secret. There are things that God is not going to tell us about. They are part of his sovereign plan, his sovereign decree, and he does not owe us why he does what he does. He is the sovereign God of the universe. Throughout the gospel of John, Jesus has been patient in answering the whys of those who are listening to him teach. But as it relates to our relationship with God, we may ask him why, but he doesn't tell us. Things happen, and it may not be for years that we're able to look back and get some clarity on what's happened in our life. Have you ever experienced this? where something will happen in your life and you don't know exactly why it happened. You may even ask God why this has happened, but he doesn't tell us. 
And then we move along in time, and then maybe a year down the road, a couple years down the road, we're able to look back, and we're able to say, oh, maybe that's why that happened. Maybe God was using this circumstance to cause this circumstance, and there would be this, this, this snowball that rolls down the hill all for His honor and for His glory. So He doesn't owe us why but as God's children, we're to be obedient to what His Word tells us to do, whether we know why or not. And so throughout our study of the Gospel of John, Jesus has been answering, uh, He's been very patient in answering the whys of those who were listening to Him teach. But as He moves closer to the cross, we've seen that many of the whys are now coming from, not from inquisitive people who are desiring to learn, but they're coming from those who want to play gotcha with Jesus. Those religious people who are wanting to argue with him and shoot holes in his words. And so Jesus has gotten very direct with those people. Being inquisitive certainly isn't wrong, but it's why folks are questioning Jesus that matters. Kathy and I were much more willing to answer the questions of our kids if we thought they were coming from a sincere heart. And so in chapter 8, we saw the loving compassion that Jesus had on the adulterous woman as she desired to repent of her sin. And Jesus forgave her and told her to go and to sin no more. But later in chapter 8, we saw the encounters that Jesus had with these obstinate people in the temple uh, to be flat out disrespectful and, and sinful. Well, this morning we, we find a special encounter with a certain man as Jesus has now left the temple. And as a result of this encounter, we find some very real, sincere questions being asked. As a young child, this was one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. And so I've been looking forward to getting to this section of Scripture so that we could consider it together. But I want to read it for you and then we'll pick it apart. So look at verse 1 of chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciple asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said for him to go and to wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. And so he went away and he washed and he came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? And others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but, but, but he's like him. And he kept saying, no, 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 I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went away and I washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. So as we work our way through this this morning, there are really six matters to unravel about this 
initial encounter that we find here. And the story will last all the way through the end of the chapter, and we'll take it as it comes, but we're going to look at verses 1 through 12 today that I just read to you. Six matters to unravel about this initial encounter, and the first is the issue at hand. The issue at hand, look at verse 1 again, as he, meaning Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, we're not sure how much time had passed from this encounter in the temple at the end of chapter 8 to this encounter with this blind man, but most likely some time had passed. And this is a reminder that what we have before us in the Gospel of John, it's not intended to be a blow-by-blow blow or a moment-by-moment moment chronicle of Jesus' life, but instead it's a selection of the things that the Lord wanted us to know about the life of Jesus, especially during his public ministry. What we do know, and I said this earlier, is that Jesus is just months from the cross at this point. And so at some time after Jesus was in the temple, he walks by a man who had been blind from birth, which means that this man had never seen a thing. It's not like he once had sight and then lost it. He was totally blind from birth. Most of you know that a few years ago, my wife Kathy lost sight in her right eye. Everything was fine until one day she started having a, a kind of a fading of her vision. And so she went to the doctor and uh, the doctor said, oh, you're getting older. And so you're just having what they call floaters and flashes. And so she was like, okay. And so she came back home and she said, yeah, it's normal. She, they just said that I'm having floaters and flashes. Well, over time, her eye began to fade even more. And then one day she woke up and she had no sight in her right eye. Now, fortunately, she still has sight in her left eye. And if you know her, you would even not even know that she lost sight in her right eye. But as I think about it, I can't even imagine what that would be like to lose sight in one of my eyes, let alone both of my eyes. It's annoying enough for me when I go to a dimly lit restaurant and I can barely see the menu, let alone to lose sight in one of my eyes, or I can't even imagine what it would be like to lose sight in both of my eyes. But that's not even the case here with this man. He had never in his life experienced sight. Now think about that. He had never seen a thing. People that would speak to him, he'd never seen their face. Places that he had gone and held on to the arm of another, he had never seen where he was at. He had never seen a thing. He had never experienced sight. Now, we do know that this encounter most likely took place in and around Jerusalem since Jesus will later instruct him to go to the Pool of Siloam, which is located in Jerusalem. And an interesting note on the Pool of Siloam, I was there back in 2018, and our tour guide at the time was the leading archaeologist on that excavation of that vast area. So it's pretty cool. He had firsthand information about what we were looking at. And at the time, it wasn't fully excavated, and they were still working on it. And now, as I've seen pictures, it's, it's much farther along than when we were there. But it was as dry as a bone when we were there. But what a great experience to be able to visit this historic place that Jesus 
uh, will mention and use here in this encounter. And so this immediately prompts a question from Jesus' disciples who were with him. And so number two here is the inquisitive nature of the disciples. Verse 2, and his disciples ask him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned this man or his parents that he would be born blind? And so as we considered last week, God has wired us to be inquisitive people, right? To ask questions, to want to know answers, to desire solutions to our problems. And it must have been common knowledge that this man had been blind from birth. Perhaps they knew him or knew of him. They'd heard his story. But the disciples essentially asked Jesus why he was blind. Why, why is this man blind? Why has he been blind from birth? I think that's a legitimate question. That's a question that we would ask. I know I've often wondered about the why of things, why things happen a certain way. For instance, why would a, a godless man or woman live a prosperous life and then someone who walked with God would get cancer and die in their 40s. Why someone would have more financial resources than they'll ever need, and then others who work very hard would have very little. There, there are questions that we ask in life, and, and we're not going to be given the answers, but we can rest in who God is. He is the sovereign God of the universe, and whatever He does is right. And so I have repeated that to myself and to others hundreds of times in my life in ministry. Whatever God does is right. Whatever he allows, he has a purpose for. And so we need to be good with that. We need to be understanding that God has got it. God is superintending all things, not just our little piece of the pie, but he's superintending all all things. Think of the vastness and the greatness and the grandeur of God. The one who holds the stars in the sky and the sun in a perfect place so that it doesn't burn up the earth. The one who is in charge of all things, he cares about us. That blows my mind. We are just little people, grasshoppers in Isaiah it says, we're just little grasshoppers that are hopping around on the planet, and yet God somehow cares deeply about us. And not just about us, but every detail of our life. That should give us comfort. But I'm going through this in my life, or I'm going through that in my life. Yes, but God is at work. God is at work in our lives, and I'm reminded of that as I look at this story. There's more to the story than meets the eye. Their question goes something like this. Was it something he did or something that his parents did and his punishment was blindness? And so they figured it had to be one of those two possibilities. But let's think it through. The first possibility couldn't be true, that he committed a particular sin that God was punishing him for, because that could be ruled out because he was blind from birth. He had not yet committed any sin because he was blind from the moment he came out of his mother's womb. So could it be that his parents had sinned and that God was taking it out on their son because that's what some would say happened with David and Bathsheba. 
that God took the life of the child that was conceived from their adulterous affair as punishment for their sin. But again, we need to ask a lot of questions as good, serious students of the Bible. Is that a fair and equal comparison? We know as Christians the awfulness of sin, right? We know that sin has offended a holy God. Sin is, is that which is against the holy law and character of God. Greek word harmartia, sin. And so there's a study of sin called harmartiology. And we'll talk about that in our What We Believe class that's coming up in a couple of months. Sin upon sin, the degradation of the society that we live in. There's been a compounding of sin over the millennia. Folks, things are not getting better, nor should we expect them to get better. They're getting worse. It's obvious they're getting worse. It's the compounding of sin. We also know that sin has permeated our society, and there's sometimes direct consequences for the reckless sin of parents. For instance, uh, it's documented that, that some babies whose mothers have regularly smoked crack or taken other illicit drugs have been born with serious health issues. There are also passages in the Old Testament that at first glance seem to indicate that God could punish the children of sinful parents. Listen to this, Exodus 20 and verse 5. God says to Israel, you shall not worship them nor serve them, meaning worshiping or serving idols, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, inflicting the punishment of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And then in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, Then the Lord passed by in front of them and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth, who keeps faithfulness for thousands, who forgives wrongdoing, violations of his law and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, inflicting the punishment of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And so are children punished for the sin of their parents? Well, in a quick reading of those two passages, we might say yes. But again, we have more homework to do because the key to understanding both of those passages is found in the phrase to the third and fourth generations. And so both of those passages that I just read for you in Exodus are referring to the corrupting influence of sin that is perpetuated on subsequent generations. The context is in a national sense or a societal sense. In other words, current generations have suffered the consequences of the sin of past generations. Children, for instance, had to endure the wandering in the wilderness and the different captivities because of the sin of previous generations. And so back to the original question of the disciples. Is this man blind because of the sin of his parents? I don't think so. And here's why. Deuteronomy 24 and verse 16 says in the context of biological fathers and sons, it says this. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin alone. Jeremiah 31, 
Verses 29 and 30 says, In those days they will no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, but it is the children's teeth that have become blunt. But everyone will die for his own wrongdoing. Each person who eats the sour grapes, his own teeth will become blunt. Ezekiel 18 and verse 20, The person who sins will die. A son will not suffer the punishment for the father's guilt, nor will a father suffer the punishment for the son's guilt. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. And so David and Bathsheba's baby was not punishment for the sin, was not punished for the sin of his parents. God was punishing them. While God could and does discipline a person for a sin they've committed, each person is responsible for his or her own sin. Because, let's think about it, this could be the great game of blame shifting, right? We, and we're good at this, we're very good at this, blame shifting, moving blame away from ourselves onto somebody else. I did this because of them. I did this because of them. And so, are we responsible for our own sin or not? Absolutely. Are our parents responsible for their own sin or not? Yes. The question is, does their sin then translate to us? Does God punish us for the sin of our parents? And so that is a legitimate question, and that's the question that is asked of Jesus. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 12. I, I, I want to I take you to a couple of passages of Scripture that really help us, I think, with this. So what we're examining right now is, could God discipline a person for a sin that they have committed? So look at Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 6. This is the verse that probably came to your mind when I mentioned this. So Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6, look at this. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as they seemed best, as as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems to be joyful, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So as we read that, we know that we, as God's people, can and are disciplined by God. Because why? He is our Father. 
We are his sons and his daughters. We are his children. And so because he loves us, he disciplines us. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Why would he discipline us? Why would he discipline us? To show us what's right. To keep us from doing the very same thing that we did that would cause the discipline. Why do we discipline our children? Why do we pull them aside? Why do we say, you can't do that? That's wrong. That's sinful. You're going to be in trouble for doing that. And so here is your punishment. Because we love them. We don't do it because we don't love them. We do it because we do love them. And those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And so we find there in that encounter, in that situation, that God does discipline those whom he loves. And so we may sin against him, and he, will, he may bring discipline into our lives. But again, we're responsible for our own sin. He doesn't discipline us because of the sin of our parents. He disciplines us because he loves us individually, and he's disciplining us because of the sin that we may have committed. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we read this every time we come to the Lord's table. Look at verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. So we come before the Lord's table every first Sunday of the month, and we take time to examine our lives before a holy God, right? And in so doing, then, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. But, but listen to this. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we have judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. The clear teaching of the Bible is that God loves us enough to bring discipline into our lives. He's that involved in our life that he cares enough and he loves us enough to teach us what is right and what is wrong. And so a permissive parent that lets their child do whatever they want to do really, honestly, doesn't love their kid. They don't love their kid enough to bring discipline into their life, to be able to share with them that this is wrong. What you're doing, what you're saying, how you're treating your brother, how you're treating your sister, it is wrong. And therefore, as your parent, I'm obligated to God to bring discipline into your life to raise my children in the fear of the Lord, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, that's a hard sell for kids. Kids are like, oh, I'm in trouble again. There, there should be a consistency as parents. There should be a consistency in our life. Because if we let our kids get by with this, this time and that time, but not that time, then we're confusing them as to what's right. Parenting is not easy. It's hard. And the more kids you have, the harder it is. Because you got four of them that are doing their thing, or you got five of them that are doing their own thing. 
And, and you have to, as a parent, bring discipline into their life. No, that's wrong. We're not going to do that. Go to your room. I'll be in in a minute. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Those who take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, the Lord can bear discipline down upon them. Why? Because it is a holy occurrence. It is remembering about the death of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not to come to the Lord's table, table flippantly. Take a little cracker and drink a little juice. These are symbolic of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ who died in our place. It's a serious affair. And so he says to examine yourself. Examine yourself. Look at your life. Are there things that you need to get right in your life? Have you, have you sinned against God and not confessed your sin? Have you sinned against another and have not confessed it to the other? Where are you at in your life? Don't come to the table in a flippant way. And some of those who did have gotten sick, and some even sleep. In other words, some, it was so egregious that the Lord took their life. And so the Lord does bear discipline down upon us. So David and Bathsheba's baby was not punished for the sin of his parents. God was punishing them. In this case, since this man was born blind, there's not a possibility that his blindness has anything to do with his own sin or the sin of his parents. But for, for whatever reason, in God's sovereign plan, this, this man was born blind, which then leads us to the third matter to unravel, and it's the instance has a purpose. Look at verse 3. John 9, verse 3, Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents sinned, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so, as always, God has his purposes. He doesn't tell us the whys, but he has his purposes. He's sovereign over all things. Nothing happens without his initiative or consent. And perhaps we can say it this way, that God either prescribes or permits all things. And so Jesus answers his disciples by explaining that God sovereignly had chosen to heal this man so that his glory and power may be seen. The reference here to as long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work, means that Jesus' time on the earth is short. His impending death is just around the corner, which means that the presence of the Lord would be leaving the earth, but would resume when the Holy Spirit comes to empower them for ministry after his resurrection. Notice that Jesus says while he was still on the earth, he is the light of the world. I love the imagery there because he shines in the darkness. Those of us who are Christians know the world's dark. I mean, we, we read the news and we say, the world is dark. It's getting darker. It seems darker to me now than it did when I was 20 or 30. It seems like it's dark and getting darker, if that's a possibility. Jesus, however, is the light of the world. 
and his light would be carried forward by his disciples upon his death and departure. And in the same way, Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, reminds us that we as his followers, his disciples, are also to be lights in this dark world. Jesus said at the beginning of his great Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And now here in verses 6 and 7, we find the fourth matter to unravel, and it is that the power of Jesus is in the works. The power of Jesus in the works. Look at verse 6. When he had said this, he spat on the ground. I like this language. He spat on the ground and he made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. Now, I remember this story when I was a kid. I've told you about Miss Irma before, but I Bear with me. She was the master of the, of, the, of the flannel graph. And she was our children's church teacher. And so she would make these stories come alive. She put that felt up there, man, and we'd look at that stuff and we'd see it in real time. We'd think this is the coolest thing in the world. So I remember hearing the story when I was just a little tyke. I loved it. I thought it was the coolest thing. I mean, boys and men, we, we kind of like this story because we spit a lot more than girls and women. So the ladies may be grossed out by this, but for us guys, we get it. We, we understand it. Jesus literally spits in the dirt, and then he gets down on his hands and knees, and he makes a little mud pie. All out of the liquid that came out of his mouth, and the dust of the ground. And then the ladies are going to think, oh, this is gross, but us God, we, that's pretty cool. He takes it, and then he puts it in the eyes of this blind guy. He rubs it around a little bit. And then he tells him, go wash it off in the pool of Siloam. So his eyes are covered with this mud. Jesus says, now, Go do what I tell you to do. I want you to go and I want you to wash off this mud that I put on your eyes and you're going to do it at the pool of Siloam. And so because this guy was blind, somebody would have had to have taken him there, right, to do this. And again, being there at, that, at this pool, I can tell you that there are two long corridors that are hewn out of the mountain to access the pool. One is wet and the other is dry. The wet one's called Hezekiah's Tunnel, and our group that was going to be going to Israel, we're going to have an opportunity to walk through Hezekiah's Tunnel, and that corridor is always full of water, usually up about to a person's knee. That tunnel was the feeder for the water to keep the pool of Siloam full, and so the man was obedient, and he goes there. He washes off the mud from his eyes, and he can see for the first time, this guy can see. Can you even imagine what that would be like? He'd never seen a thing. You ever talk to somebody on the phone, then you meet him in person? 
It's the weirdest thing. Like you have this, you have this thing conjured up in your mind's eye that this is how this person looks. You've talked to them on the phone a million times, and then when you meet them in person, they don't look like anything like you thought they would look like. And so all the people that he'd interacted with his whole life, he's now meeting them, and he's seeing them for the very first time. What Jesus told him to do worked. He put the mud on his eyes, and now he can see for the very first time. And this leads us to the fifth matter to unravel, and it is the inquisitive nature of the neighbors. So look at verse 8. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? And others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, no, I, I am the one. And so they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay, and he anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went away and washed, and I received sight. And so not only were the disciples inquisitive, so were the blind beggar's neighbors. Of course, begging was very common in those days because blind people couldn't work. So they would be relegated to sitting and begging for food and begging for money. And so the neighbors get into this discussion and they're asking, isn't this the man who would sit and beg people for food and money? And some of the neighbors said, yeah, that's him. And then others say, no, it looks like him, but it's someone else. But this man who was blind, who now can see, says, no, 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 it's me. It's me. And so they began to inquire about what happened. How is it that all of a sudden that this man can now see? And so he tells them the story. He says, this man, Jesus, spit into the dirt, made a mud pie, put the mud on my eyes, told me to go to the pool of Siloam and wash it off. And when I did, I could see. Which then leads us to the sixth matter to unravel. And it's the investigation of where Jesus had gone the investigation of where Jesus had gone. Look at verse 12. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. And again, I, when I read these kinds of stories in the Bible, I kind of try to put myself there so that I can kind of see it in my mind's eye. Of course, it's probably not what I think. Certainly when I went to Israel, I had all these things that conjured up in my mind. I read the Bible for 50 years. And so I, I go to Israel and I think, this is what it's going to look like. It doesn't look like anything like what I thought it looked like. But as I digest and work through stories like this, I put myself into the situation trying to be there to see what this was like. And so what we might miss here is that even if Jesus was in the vicinity, this formerly blind man never saw him, so he wouldn't be able to identify him anyway. Where's he gone? I don't know. Who is he? I don't know. I don't know. I never saw him. He was blind when all this happened. And so when we think about this amazing story, it's really a beautiful picture of salvation, isn't it? Man is blinded by his sin, can do nothing in and of himself to remedy his spiritual blindness, but Jesus can. Notice here that it was Jesus who sought out this blind man. It was Jesus who chose to heal him from his blindness. The man was willing only after Jesus approached him. 
And so it is with the salvation that God through Christ offers to sinful man. God must initiate salvation because all people are spiritually blind. And really it's even worse than that. All people are spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins. I want, we look at a miracle like this and we say, wow, this is, this is really unbelievable. Jesus uses his own spit, the dust of the ground, makes a mud pie, puts it on this guy's eye, tells him to go to the pool of Siloam, and then he can see. He'd been blind from birth. And we go, man, that is, that is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible. And it is. But you think about it. Jesus has miraculously saved us from the due penalty of our sin. Spiritually blind, can't see God who, for who He is, want nothing to do with Him because of our spiritual blindness. Indeed, as I said, we're spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. And you think of the millions and millions and millions of people that God has removed the scales from our eyes so that we may see Jesus. It is amazing. It is amazing. This is a, a one-off situation with one man in a physical way, but think of the millions and millions of people that God through Christ has saved as the Holy Spirit of God has used the powerful gospel message to penetrate our hearts, to open our eyes, and to cause us to be born again. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. I love how the Apostle Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses he made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in christ jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in christ jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God, and it's not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing what God has done for us. Are we living for him? Like, I don't know how better to say it, but our life should be one giant thank you for what God has done for us through Christ. I had an old guy tell me one time, Pastor Dave, you thank people too much. I said, what? How can you thank people too much? How can you be, how can you be uh, thinking of others too much with gratitude? I, I don't get it. And whereas I respected the guy, I told him, I don't, I don't, I'm not with you on that. I'm not with you. 
I mean, we should be a grateful people. What does gratitude and thanksgiving look like? Is it just words that we say, hey, thank you? Is it a card that we write out to somebody to thank them? I mean, you can go to the store and you can buy a pack of cards that are thank you cards and you can write a nice note and you can give it to somebody. But what's going on inside your heart? Is that just something you do because it's culturally acceptable? We need to write a thank you card because somebody gave us something. Well, that wouldn't be a good motivation. Yes, we should do that, but it should be coming from the heart. So when we think about what God through Christ has done for us, in, in, in taking us as spiritually... Do, do you think that this man... And we're going to see more about this guy's life. Couldn't see a thing. And God causes the blind man to see. So what is he going to do? How is he going to live in light of that? Is he going to live a life of gratefulness? To Jesus, or what's going to happen there? And so we'll see that as we move through the rest of chapter 9. But as we think about this on a spiritual front, shouldn't our lives be one giant thank you to the Lord? I don't know how else to say it. We talked last week about bringing glory to God. Whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, bring glory to God. Bring glory to God. We talked about this God. How can, we, how can we bring glory to God if we're not aware of God? And how can we be aware of God if God hasn't opened our, our eyes to his truth? He did it all for us. And so our lives should be one giant thank you to the Lord. If you're here today and you do not know Christ as your Savior, you know about him. You maybe even knew this story that we looked at today. Maybe you grew up in the church like me. doesn't mean that you have a right relationship with Christ. We must trust in him. Repenting of our sin, desiring to turn from our sin and turn to Jesus Christ. He is the only way we're going to have a right relationship with the Father. Because as I've said many, many times over the years, we cannot present our own righteousness to God. He looks at it as filthy rags. Our righteousness, God looks at as a bunch of filthy rags. Only through the righteousness of Jesus Christ who died in our place will God receive us and welcome us into his family. So we must trust in Jesus. We must trust in his righteousness. And then God will save us from our sin. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of salvation, what we looked at today. Do you know Christ? Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for your love to us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you have done an amazing miracle in our lives. And we look at this and we go, wow, this is a great story. It's a great miracle. And yet we look at it in our own lives and we go, wow, you have opened our spiritually blind eyes in the same way. And you have drawn us to yourself. And you've given us your grace and the faith to believe. We're children of God. You care about every aspect of our lives. Is our life one giant thank you for what you've done for us? It should be, and we know that. So help us, Lord. Help us in our failings. 
Help us in our inadequacies. Help us to anchor in you. We thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.